If you enjoy this podcast, become an ongoing Patreon supporter. There you'll find regular giveaways, weekly updates, monthly AMA threads, and more. Sign up today at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Also be sure to visit the affiliates page for discounts to courses with Permaculture Women's Guild and Heather Jo Flores, as well as the Environment Celebration Institute and Dr. Elaine Ingham. You can also save on herbal remedies from Susquehanna Apothecary and some of the best hand tools around from Rebel Garden Tools. Those are at the permaculturepodcast.com slash affiliates. You'll find links to those and more in the show notes for this episode. This is the Permaculture Podcast. My guest today is the adventurer, activist, and humanitarian Rob Greenfield. Rob joins me to talk about the Food Freedom Project he launched in Orlando, Florida, where he is growing and foraging for all of his nutritional needs. During the conversation, Rob shares what brought him to the project, some of his choices along the way, just how strict he is when he says he grows or forages all of his food, and the potential to accomplish these goals of a 100% self-procured local diet in other climates. Enjoy this conversation with Rob, and I'll join you again after. For people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you give us a bit of an introduction, how you came to foraging tiny homes and all the other work you do, and we can take the conversation from there? Sure. Well, let's see. In 2011, I was living in many ways a fairly typical American lifestyle. My, you know, the, the American dream. My goal was to be a millionaire by the time I was 30. I was very focused on my material possessions and and that was like, you know, largely the center of my life. It revolved around money. And then I started to watch a lot of documentaries and read a lot of books and just started to realize that, whoa, you know, this isn't the life that I thought. You know, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing because corporations sold me on this idea or mainstream media. And so, you know, I just really woke up to the fact that most all of my actions, the food I was eating, the car I was driving, the trash that I was creating, everything was causing destruction to the world. And so that's when I decided I wanted to change my life and be a part of the solutions instead of the problems and headed down this path of of just learning the alternatives and just changing my life one bit at a time. And that just led me into all these amazing things that are going on in the world. And that was one of the things when I looked into the work that you've done so far, is that just in the last couple of years, since starting in 2011, it looks like you've been really project-oriented, that you take an idea and you run with it really until completion, that you discover something, explore it very deeply, and then in that process are sharing it with others. And so could you tell us a bit about your previous projects, and then we can move into your current work? Yeah. My first ever was I I decided I was going to bike across the United States off the grid. And the idea was to cross the country with no negative environmental impact, so and to explore sustainable living deeply. So for food, I could only eat locally grown, organic, unpackaged food or food that was going to waste. For water, I'd have to harvest my own water, no using water from on the grid. For energy, I had my solar panels with me to create my own energy, couldn't use any from on the grid. Trash, I had to carry every piece of trash I created all the way across the country with me, so trying to create almost no garbage. And then transportation, I had to bike, you know, the whole way, no using fossil fuels. And that was my first ever big project. It was 104 days of cycling across the country. And for me, these projects are, 
one, it's a deep exploration. It allows me to really immerse myself in different topics and, and learn about it. And at the same time, share the, this important knowledge with other people. So after that, you know, one of my next big projects was trying to demonetize my life. I landed in Panama with no money, with just the clothes on my back and my passport and had to travel back to San Diego through seven countries. Really, depending on my resourcefulness, you know, learning to be a better problem solver and understand what resources are freely abundant all around us. But secondly, to be a better community member, to learn how to work with people. By traveling with no money, I was dependent upon the kindness of others. And I believe the best way to be able to give to others is to actually be able to know how to receive. So, you know, immersing myself in that. Trash Me was another big project. I, you know, learning about how much garbage we create. For a month, I lived like the average American, but I had to wear every piece of trash that I created. So that was just a full immersion in the American lifestyle and how much garbage it creates. And at the same time, just creating a visual that showed people this is what the average American looks like if you just simply hold on to all of your garbage. And definitely there's been other ones in between there. But that's really the idea, to immerse myself and learn and then be taking people on the adventure and, and sharing and you know teaching. And were those all of your projects or were there some other things that you dove into? Definitely others. Um, I biked across the United States two other times. Um, the third time was a community bike ride across the country called Green Riders. And there were 30, 29, 30 people that met in New York City at Central Park, almost all complete strangers. And we biked across the United States, planting fruit trees, volunteering in gardens, starting some gardens, cleaning up trash, and stopping also and learning about permaculture at different sites. So that's one project. I did travel through South America another time with no money from Brazil to Colombia, 7,000 miles. That was for a Discovery Channel TV show called Freeride. Lots of smaller projects. Dumpster diving is another one. I've dived into about 3,000 dumpsters across the United States to explore food waste and to create visuals to really show people and help people understand how we waste half of our food in the United States, while one in seven Americans are food insecure. When were you exposed to permaculture? Jeez, the first time I ever heard of permaculture. Mm. Well, I did my permaculture design certificate down in Lago Atitlan. Shad is, was the teacher, Shad Quidsi. And uh, amazing, you know, that was back in 2016. So, but I knew... Or maybe, was that 2016 or 2000? Yeah, summer of 2016-ish. But I knew about permaculture before then, so I had learned about it within the, you know, a couple years before that. But I don't know where it actually came from. I know I was out in Hawaii in like 2012 and volunteered on a permaculture farm. So I guess I, I must have learned about permaculture pretty early on in when I, you know, I woke in 2011 and, and I must have gotten into permaculture and learned about it within the first year, for sure. And then how did all of those experiences lead you to your current project and foraging? Yeah, so my current project is to, is for one year, I'm growing and foraging 100% of my food. You know, that no restaurants, no grocery stores. That includes no dumpster diving. I can dumpster dive to, to make compost, but no eating food from any dumpsters. 
Um, not even going to my friend's food forest and eating from their food forest. I have to grow it or forage it. For me, you know, this is definitely the culmination of a lot of other things. It's kind of, it's to me, you know, in permaculture, it is kind of one of the ultimate things is, can we step outside of the globalized, industrialized food system and actually create all of our food? And of course, none of it's created by humans, really. It was, you know, it all exists by the earth, just working with the earth. But for me, it's just one of the big things. It's, you know, when I first got into one of the earliest things was learning about where our food was coming from. Food is the center of our lives, of our social lives, of our existence, of our family lives. For a lot of us, it's our happiness and, you know, our hobbies. It's so much the center of our lives. And it was one of the first things that really woke me up. Like, what am I, what am I putting in my body and what is it doing to the earth? And so this is kind of the ultimate culmination of my waking up, you know, getting this point of, can I step away from consumerism and away from this globalized system that's pillaging our world and actually live in a way that is, you know, pretty, pretty in harmony with the, with the world on around me and yeah, and that's that's kind of what got me to trying this out. With putting those restrictions on yourself that it has to come 100% from what you grow and what you forage, what has that experience been like so far? Well, it's been an amazing experience. I think I'm 157 days in, so I just hit the five-month mark. So I'm, you know, I'm getting in here a little ways. And it's definitely been, it's been an incredible experience. I mean, I knew a lot about growing food and permaculture prior to this. But when I started this, I had only ever had a couple of small raised beds when I lived out in San Diego. They were wicking bed gardens. I grew a tiny amount of food. When I arrived in Orlando, I was researching, like, when do you plant carrots? How much water do you give new seeds? How much sunlight does a garden need? You know, just all of the absolute basics I was just trying to figure out. And I gave myself the original plan was six months from when I started to when I would be launching into officially growing and foraging 100% of my food. And it ended up taking 10 months because largely because I started three community initiatives, Gardens for Single Moms, Community Fruit Trees, and Free Seed Projects. So that took a large amount of my time. But it ended up taking 10 months before I started officially and I, I think that's, you know, for me, like I still look back and I'm a little astounded that I went from not really knowing what I was doing to just in a 10 month time. Now I'm close to a half year into growing and foraging all my food, which is just, uh, you know, my goal is to inspire people to get started or if people already are started, like most of the people listening to this podcast, my goal is if you've already taken 100 steps or 200 steps, to take that 101st or you know 201st step. In inspiring people to do this work, what have been some of the successes and challenges of shifting your diet and food procurement in this way? Well, I mean, the big challenge about this whole thing is it's just really time-consuming. In the average you know, week, I'm probably spending 60 hours on food. And, you know, a lot of times I get home, it's been a long day, I'm hungry, 
and then I have to spend an hour in the kitchen when all I really want to do is go to bed or you know rest. So between my multiple gardens, harvesting, processing, cooking, constantly needing to get new plants to put in, plus knowledge, you know, I'm still young in this, so learning and learning, it's just really, really time consuming, and that's that's really challenging. Before this, I'd been traveling for two years. When I lived in San Diego for five years, I traveled about half of the year. So having that freedom of being able to basically go wherever you want and whenever you want and be able to just pick up food as needed is kind of, you know, it's that freedom is largely taken away being so dependent on the land around me. That's really the biggest challenge. The other biggest challenge is just convenience. You know, that's one of the things that the, the globalized industrialized food system provides is extreme amount of convenience of just being able to get whatever you desire at usually a fairly cheap price, being able to roll up to any grocery store or restaurant at any time and grab food. And so I just don't have that, you know, I just don't have that extreme level of convenience. So that makes it, you know, that's the other, that's one of the other big challenges. Time and convenience factors would be the, the big things. And I know those are the limiting factors for a lot of people who say that they don't you know, want to do this stuff because because of that. So it, it is a very real thing. Well, I'm glad that you bring up those time requirements and also understanding that this is a very specific experiment with given guidelines and things like that for anybody who's interested in this, because people such as yourself and other folks who I know who are living what we might consider extreme ways or in very deep projects show how far we can go and also what the issues may be for somebody who wants to make this kind of a transition. Because the world that we live in right now, I can't imagine a large family without access to land and many other inter- and interpersonal resources being able to make the jump that you have. But as you say, this is about inspiring people to take step 101 or 202, and so can we move ourselves a little closer to the kinds of things that you're doing while understanding how much the culture and society we live in restricts many of the personal choices we might want to make. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that's the thing. Like, I think a lot of times people do look at what I do and they, they just say, well, I can't do that. And that's that, you know, out of sight, out of mind, it's done. I can't do that. So nothing. But it's all about embracing our situations. We can only be who we are. We can't be anybody else. We can only be where we are in that moment, and we can only be in the time that we're in. We can't go forward or back. At least most of us don't know how to yet, if it is possible. So we have to embrace that. And so if you know people have a desire to live a, you know, a life that's deeply in alignment with their values, to live out their purpose and their passion, then they have to look within and say, what can I do? What can I do to you know, start this journey to live the way that I want. Maybe it's a permaculture farm and so they don't have the money. Well, maybe they can go woofing for a couple of months and just go to other people's farms and immerse in that way or or maybe it is a family and still like, you know, maybe they do have the ability to to volunteer at a farm, you know, on the weekends in their in their community. So wherever people are in their stage, there's always you know, there's, there's generally something that can be done to get closer to living the life that really serves the earth and, and serves our communities better and, and serves ourselves. And there are so many options, but 
in many ways I find that as we make these transitions, very often it's not even knowing what questions to ask to find the organizations and different ways of doing until we hear stories such as yours and others who have accessed these resources and opportunities. As you say, you know, what organizations can you find? What farms could you volunteer with? I think of, you know, the community gardens that we have here in central Pennsylvania, where you can get a lot for free or very little money to learn to start growing and garner all that experience, or through our land-grant universities, being able to take some of the naturalist or gardener's courses and learn these things directly with other people who have lots of experience. It's amazing. I mean, people look at the United States sort of in this negative way and say that there's just nothing good going on here. But that's one of the biggest takeaways I've gotten over the last what, eight years now of being a part of this movement is, sure, the United States is a messed up place in so many ways, but there is also an incredible amount of amazing things going on and so much grassroots movement. And I've been to 49 states now, and I Everywhere I go, I find so much good going on. More community gardens popping up, more community bike programs and bike shops and kitchens, you know, more permaculture. And so, you know, here in Orlando, I talk to people, this, you know, this is Orlando, it's Disney World, it's, it's you know, one of the most, the busiest airports in the country, business conference capital. And so most people think about this place as just this place that probably has nothing good going on. But right here is Orlando Permaculture, and it's the best permaculture community that I've really fallen into in the United States. There's 2,000 people in the Facebook group. It's super active. We meet every first, second Tuesday of the month, and there's usually about 100 people at the meetings. And there's people all the time that, you know, that say, whoa, I had no clue anything great was going on in Orlando. And then they get you know, they hear about what I'm doing. They come to one of my gardening classes. I tell them about all the good stuff. And then a few months later, now they're just immersed in it. And then Orlando is a whole different, they see Orlando through a whole different viewpoint. And the way all those grassroots initiatives can help build up an area and provide the opportunity for people then to get engaged, to see how to grow their own food, what it's like to forage or dumpster dive or build a composting toilet and bring people together around the different on-the-ground activities that they're interested in, while also having these bigger conversations about how these actions care for Earth and their communities. Absolutely. It's out there waiting for us. I'm glad to hear that Orlando's so active, because I hear from people in various regions around the country and around the world where there are only a handful of people who are practicing in this way that they're aware of, and then as they meet other people who are interested in, in doing this kind of work, that... Getting projects off the ground can be difficult because there are places where this work is being done, and in some cases it's easier to move to those locations rather than to begin to build up in place where we are. But, you know, from your work and traveling the country and other folks who are doing things like you are, that need for us to be in a place and to help build up these projects to allow other people to come in and get engaged and stay involved. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is to keep your mind, keep your eyes open for permaculture that's not being called permaculture because, you know, when I go out and I am, I'm always everywhere I go, I'm looking for food. You know, I'm, I'm always keeping my eyes open for fruit trees and, and whatever's growing. And most of the neighborhoods that I go to where I see a lot, a lot of food growing, it's Caribbean communities. It's uh, people from Southeast Asia, a lot of people from Africa. And 
I think that most of these people don't really know the term permaculture or practice permaculture, but when you look at their front and backyards, you know, they're growing little food forests and they have the multiple layers going on and they're growing perennials and they're basically doing, per, they're basically, you know, they're, they do permaculture, but they don't, they don't really call it or know of it as permaculture. And so, you know, that's another way to see if you can find it in your community is just, is look for those different communities of people that are, that just do it as a way of life. Those cultural or indigenous practices that people still continue, regardless of where they may be in the world. When you are out and about with your foraging, since you're growing so much of your food, do you allow yourself to dumpster dive as a form of like urban foraging? Or are you looking for foods that are already growing? Yeah, most people consider dumpster diving foraging, you know, kind of urban foraging. But for this year, no dumpster diving at all. And the reason being is that I've done a lot of dumpster diving. I've already proved to myself that I can live 100% on dumpster food. I did bike from Wisconsin to New York City once on 100% dumpster food. And so I've already really explored that. And I've already really rose, rose awareness, risen awareness about that. But this is different. I want to, this is about a deep connection with the land outside of the industrialized, globalized food system and to see if it's possible to subsist on, you know, the food that's growing naturally right here from the earth. So no eating any food from the dumpsters for a year. Then what does your diet consist of? Are you on a vegetarian or vegan diet when it comes to foraging? Are you doing any hunting to supplement that? How does that look then day to day on your plate? You know, that's something that has fascinated for me for a long time is searching out vegan communities uh, around the world. And when I say communities, I mean, you know, actual populations of people that are reproducing that have been vegan for, you know, multiple generations. And it's just not something that, you know, I can find that really seems to exist. I did find, I talked to one guy in Tennessee who said he does grow he lives 100% off of his land and is vegan and has lots of established nut trees and stuff and such. I haven't seen the proof that it actually he is doing it, but that's the only example that I've found and I've really searched. I personally think, you know, the most sustainable and connected communities of humanity, animals are involved. I don't really find the proof otherwise. So personally for me, I fish for the meat. And then I actually eat some squirrels too. And that's mostly because squirrels are my problem and I'm trying to turn them into my solution. Ironically, they eat my plant-based form of protein. I grow peanuts. I'm trying to grow peanuts and sunflowers. And instead the squirrels eat my peanuts and sunflowers. So I've just been eating some of them. And they're actually fairly tasty and it's actually kind of nice. So you know, trying to turn the problem into the solution there. But um, most of, as far as like, you know, meat aside, I probably do eat a 90% plant-based diet, which I find is, is a good balance for me, a primarily plant-based diet, but with that balance of, of some animal. My main sustenance is calories. I grow yuca or cassava, sweet potato, and yams. And I would say, you know, over half of my 
total calories come from those. So you're really relying on those root crops as your staples? Yes. Here in Orlando, you know, here in Florida, Florida is not a grain place. There are some grains that can be grown, but it's just not a grain place. But we are blessed with being a great place for tubers. I calculated that you can pretty much grow a year's supply of yucca for one person in a in a fraction of a, a you know a reasonable size yard, which is pretty powerful. Just thinking that you know calorie wise, for, I, for me it seems like most permaculturists that's one of the main challenges of trying to be food self sufficient is calories. Here, yucca is one pretty special way to do that. The other is sweet potatoes. I grew over 400 pounds of sweet potatoes in a little patch that was less than 10 feet wide by 20 feet long, maybe. So we're talking 200, wait, is that 200 square feet? 10 by 20? Yeah. So 200 square feet, and I put out um, over 400 pounds of sweet potato, which is, if I'm eating four pounds a day, then that's 100 days supply of calories from that little 200 square foot patch. So I have found that in a pretty minimal amount of space that I am indeed able to meet my staple calorie needs. And that matches some of the other conversations that I've had with folks in temperate climates where sweet potatoes are often the focus because they require minimal processing for folks who don't have equipment for winnowing and milling grain and things like that. So that's great to hear. Yeah, they are great. Sweet potatoes... Oh man, I just I just can't get enough of sweet potatoes. I haven't been I have not gotten sick of them at all. I'm just, you know, I crave them. Now, yucca on the other hand, I crave yucca when it's good. It's nice and soft and fluffy, kind of like white potatoes. But I have this thing um there's this guy down here, Maribu Thomas, amazing permaculturist. Um and I told him about this and he said it's it's called glassy when the yucca kind of gets sticky like tapioca would and um, it's just kind of tough and uh, translucent rather than white and fluffy and that oh it's hard to even choke that down and unfortunately a lot of my crop is glassy and unfortunately there's like he's done a lot of research on this and he can't find why yucca gets glassy so if there's anyone out there listening to this that knows if there's ways to keep yucca from being glassy or anything, definitely contact me and you might save many, many, you might make me a much happier human. Well, we'll certainly put that call out and see what answers we get. Yeah. As far as other main, main foods to answer that question, I do forage a lot of coconut. So that's one of my main sources of fat and protein. Um, there's just, there's just tens of thousands of coconut trees maybe hundreds of thousands growing all over Florida. They're south of me, so I go on trips. And I can make coconut oil, coconut milk. I can dry it uh, and make flakes or chunks. Just eat it as is. I think one coconut, like one average-sized coconut, has something like 1,500 calories in it. I, I still haven't done the exact math. but So coconuts are a huge one for me. Lots of I grow pigeon peas or gandules. I've probably harvested about 10 pounds of those. So that's been pretty good. A lot of moringa, katuk, a lot of perennial greens like chaya, cranberry, hibiscus. I also do a lot of annual greens, kale, 
Swiss chard, collards, cabbage, things like that. So I do a combination of I do kind of a combination of permaculture as well as annuals because I do find that annuals for me trying to go from nothing to a hundred percent in six months, I found that the annuals really have that quick production. So using those as well. And uh yeah, so far I've eaten about a hundred thirty or a hundred fifty different species of foods, whether I've grown or foraged it. And what you said about coconut for fat, protein, and oil answered one of my other questions that I had because of those being, you know, very often staples in people's diets. But with that, did you allow yourself any herbs or spices when it comes to cooking or are you even growing those as well? Yep. And I'm growing all those. It's literally a hundred percent. No, no exceptions whatsoever for the year. So I have probably 20 or 30 herbs and spices, turmeric, very quick production down here, you know, just one season. And I was able to have a lot of turmeric ginger. I got ginger, but that's much slower. That's more like a two season thing. As far as different herbs, cilantro, dill, different basils, like holy basil, which is a perennial Thai basil, and then your standard Italian green basil. Um, Cuban oregano, uh, the curry tree, I grow annual peppers, garlic, green onions. I also grow oregano, thyme, rosemary. So I definitely have quite an abundance of different flavors. And with that 100%, so you don't have like an emergency supply of food that you put back or anything like that once you started this project and hit that date, it's been purely what you've been growing or foraging? The only foods that I have in my house that are not foods that I've grown or foraged are I made prior to this project some vinegar and I have and that was from dumpster apples and I wrote on this not for consumption and that's just for cleaning and then I have some coconut oil that I use for body that I found on the side of the road that someone was thrown away and then I have a thing of paprika but that's only for plant for sprinkling on the on the soil, supposedly I can sprinkle that where I plant peanuts and if the squirrels get it on their paws and then lick their paws, they it kind of deters them. And then I also have some olive oil that's only for body oil as well that I also found in the dumpster. But uh, yeah, so literally no backup whatsoever at all. Really dove into it. That's pretty awesome. Did going to Orlando factor into this project because of the warm climate year-round and ability to forage so much throughout? Yeah, I mean, just on a personal level, I am very much a warm-weather person. You know, I thrive in the warm weather. I'm happier in warm weather. You know, I lived in San Diego, California before this. I'm from Wisconsin, uh, northern Wisconsin. The The coldest it ever was when I was up there was negative 60 Fahrenheit. So I am you know, well-versed to the cold. I lived in Wisconsin for the first 23 years of my life. But right now, I just have a desire to be somewhere warm. And then, yeah, this project, being able to grow food year-round is just, it's far easier here in so many ways because I have fresh food year-round. It's, you know, it's pretty amazing. With that being said, I feel an extremely strong calling to do this same project in a temperate climate you know, either New York or possibly Vermont, possibly Wisconsin, where I'm from. I'm from 
you know, the Lake Superior region and I'm called to do it up there. So I am, I, there's so many people that say that it can't be done and that they just write this whole thing off and say, well, you're in a warm climate. But I know people that are in those colder climates that they do 80% of their food. I, I stayed at a family farm where they, you know, a family of like eight or six or eight and they produce 80% of their food. So I know that it's doable, but at this point, well, actually, I don't know that it's doable to do 100%. I'm extremely intrigued, and I think I'll probably end up doing it at some point down the road. And based on conversations we've had here in Pennsylvania with other permaculture practitioners, master gardeners, and then also through the works of people like Steve Solomon, who wrote Gardening When It Counts, we're fairly certain that here in Pennsylvania, you can grow 100% of your food and do it year-round, but you would need either a hoop house, some cold frames, but it would take a different set of plants and preparation in order to do that. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. I mean, I'm not usually speaking on permaculture podcasts. I'm usually talking to like a little bit more people that don't really know about permaculture. So this goes without saying in the permaculture community, but it's about embracing the environment that we're in and adapting to that environment. And the reality is, it doesn't matter whether it's desert, tropical, temperate, tundra, there's an abundance of resources. They're going to be different in each place, but there's there's an amazing abundance of resources wherever you are, and it's about tapping into those resources. If anyone wanted to move towards more locally grown food, personally grown food, foraged foods, what kind of education, experience, or skill development would you recommend for people or even books to put on their shelves in order to move in this direction? You know, one of my biggest recommendations is to try to start local. Find out what's going on in your area so that the information is the most applicable to you. So going to local community gardens and, you know, talking to the gardeners there, seeing if any will take you under their wing finding out if there's any meetup groups, checking on Facebook for different groups. There might be like Grow New York or, you know, Backyard Gardeners of California. So looking for that, online resources, searching YouTube for possible people that are in your same zone or or in your area. So definitely that's oh also finding nurseries or local seed companies, woofing, you know, uh, volunteering on different organic farms. If you can find permaculture farms in your area or gardens, just go in there and soaking up the information, volunteering, you know, give your service to them and they'll give you their service of educating you back. So, you know, that's one big way. Another way is immersing by taking a permaculture design certificate. I, I don't think that the certificate is necessarily important to have, but it is an amazing way to take the time to really immerse in it. I mean, that's the most beautiful thing about it is it's easy to get distracted when you're at home on your computer, but if you go immerse in a PDC, then it just really gives you the opportunity to just really get into it. So, you know, immersion, things like that. And uh, yeah, so that that's some of my thoughts on, you know, ways to get started and finding, you know, ways to learn and get involved. Well, I really appreciate that. I know that there's a lot of push sometimes for the design certificate and where that can lead afterwards. And, you know, here I am with a podcast about permaculture because it's just a place where I was able to combine all my skills. And that's where I think that that design course education, formally or informally, 
whether it's people studying together or going off to someone who's teaching this, who can pass that knowledge on to you directly, that it's not so much the skills that I learned along the way, but the way that immersing myself in permaculture allowed me to see the world and to ask different questions that really gave the opportunity to begin to really live differently in the environment that I was in with the resources that I had available and to do things and make better judgments while working with many people who weren't judgmental about the choices I was making. It's really about immersing yourself with people that like, just allow you to be you and pursue what you want. For me, moving out to San Diego, you know, it's not that I was doing what other people were doing. It's that I could do what I want and other people didn't care. Whereas in Wisconsin, you know, trying to cut back on meat consumption in Wisconsin, people are like, what? You know, no beef? What's going on with you? But out in California, whether they were eating beef or not, it didn't matter to them whether you were. They just let you be yourself. And, you know, that's why woofing and these different, you know, work away, help X, or going and taking a immersion like a PDC course, that's one of those things that is really great because you can find yourself by being around like-minded people that allows you to just really just be yourself and embrace yourself. Well, I really appreciate that you took the time to join me today, Rob. This really comes kind of at an opportune time for me right now, as I'm in an experiment with a friend of mine who practices Greek Orthodoxy, and so I've been fasting with them every Wednesday and Friday, according to those traditions, which is meat and dairy-free, which is a big change for me. And so hearing about your work and experimenting with this and sharing this experience with my friend, it really comes together and shows all the different ways that we can find traditions or even in the modern context, different ways to live that give us a better appreciation for what we do have and the difference we can make. And with that and everything you've shared with us, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the listeners before we begin to draw this conversation to a close? Yeah, I guess it's just like you said, it's a matter of just looking at the world in a different way. I mean, the crazy thing about my PDC course, the, the thing that I recommend or that I remember the most was realizing that trees don't grow from the soil under them. They're growing basically out of thin air. They're absorbing CO2 and turning that into carbon, which makes their giant tree trunks. It's not the soil underneath them. I always thought that that's, what was draw- that's where they were building from. And when you realize these giant trees are basically being created out of thin air, you're looking at the world in a totally different way. And so that's really what it's all about. It's like always trying to take a step back. It's not about any prescribed values or rules. Nothing's black and white. Everything's gray. And it's just always about stepping back, trying to look at the world from you know an open lens and you know embrace what's going on around us and try to work with that instead of against it. Well, thank you for that, Rob, and for joining me today. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I look forward to having another one with you whenever you launch your next project, whether that's replicating what you're currently doing in a temperate climate or wherever your journeys take you. Thank you for joining me today on the Permaculture Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott, and thanks for making this podcast and helping educate and inspire so many people out there. And that was Rob Greenfield. Find out more about his work and other projects, including those mentioned during his introduction, at robgreenfield.tv. In addition to a link to that, you'll also find a link in the resource section of the show notes 
to the Day 111 update that Rob posted to YouTube, as well as the National Farmers Market Directory here in the U.S. if you want to start following Rob's path and start eating more local food. In this conversation, I mentioned one of my favorite authors for growing our own food, Steve Solomon, and his book, Gardening When It Counts. Because of the influence of that book on my views over the years, I'm giving away a copy over at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. That giveaway starts on May 8th and runs through May 18th, 2019, so head over there and leave a comment today to enter. As Rob also encourages us to forage, I'm also giving away a copy of Sam Thayer's The Forager's Harvest. Sam remains one of my favorite foraging authors and educators, as his book stems from years of practice and refinement on the land and in the landscape. You'll find that giveaway at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast starting on May 18th and open for at least 10 days. As with the giveaway for Gardening When It Counts, all you need to do is leave a comment in that post and you're entered in the drawing. Two things continue to resonate for me as I worked on editing this interview and as I put the finishing touches on the show. The first is the project-based approach that Rob takes in these deep immersions, whether for this particular take on food or when he wore all the trash he created for a month, which you can see in the initial picture at his website, robgreenfield.tv. This project-focused exploration is something all of us can use as a model to dive into a subject we're interested in, whatever that may be. We can pick one thing and see what we can learn about it, how far we can go, and the lessons we can pick up in a fixed amount of time. Maybe we want to spend the rainy season for our location, learning to harvest water or to take a growing season to explore a particular plant, from seed to harvest, under different conditions in our garden, or to take a year and see how little electricity or fossil fuels we can use. By creating conditions that test ourselves, we can learn more about our wants, needs, and limits, safely and productively, that will, hopefully, lead us to better ways to honor the ethics of permaculture when our time with a given experiment comes to an end. The other side that sticks with me is from near the end, where we talked about replicating this project in different climates. Given that humans populated the globe long before the prevalence of agriculture, and subsisted through hunting, foraging, and, to borrow the language from MCAT Anderson, tending the wild, why can't we procure all of our food from our local environment? Yes, if this were a full-time endeavor, as Rob is going through, it may mean we spend a lot more time on growing, gathering, and preparing food, But what if we use that as an end goal and work our way back to where we are in the moment? To start by buying from our farmer's market and co-ops while learning what we can about wild and forageable foods. To take the suggestions of authors like Sarah Beer and look for the abandoned fruit trees in our neighborhoods or to ask our neighbors if we can harvest from what they have. Each step like this brings us closer to that local nutritious diet. If we find we cannot gain much of our food in this way, why not? What are the legal, environmental, or social factors keeping us from doing so? What can we do to change these limitations, personally or within our community? What are your thoughts on seeking 100% of your own food? Can you imagine doing this in your local environment? What skills or resources would you need to obtain to make these choices? Let me know by leaving a comment in the show notes or dropping something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is my interview with Spoon Carver and Christmas tree coppice farmer Emmett Van Dreisch about his work and new book, Carving Out a Living on the Land. Until the next time, spend each day 
finding, preparing, and eating the best food you can while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.